climax because if it's not, I'm in for a treat. But it, it kind of hits a breaking point and that's what happened about three years ago. I'm not going to go into any detail, but the, the kind of the pinnacle point of the story of being hurt by people in the church happened. It was embarrassing, it was hurtful, it was wrong, and it really shook me up big time. I don't even know if there's too many people in this room other than just a handful that they even know what I was like before something like that happened. I question everything that I believed in. I even, there's only a couple people I've told, but there was even times where I was like, I don't even know if I want to do this, believe this anymore. It's like time and time again. The enemy's like, not firing arrows, he's like shooting cannons at me and it hurts. I remember, I remember getting up from my seat that night and uh, I walked down this way. There's a hallway of Sunday school rooms. I got, where, ironically, where a lot of things that have been said over the years happen. I got towards the end, and this, this very Bible that I have right here, I put my best fastball grip on it, and I slammed it on the ground. I was like, I'm, I'm, I don't care. I don't want it. I'm not, I, my intention is not to go back and get that thing. And then my mom, she was there. She's like, calm down. It's okay. You're, you're fine. She's trying to comfort me. And I eventually went and picked it up and brought it back, and that's why it's sitting here today as a testament to God's grace, I guess, really. But... But these events, these little statements, these little things over a lifetime cause me to continuously wonder, has God just left me hanging? Has God just walked out on me? Has He abandoned me? And how many times is this going to happen before I actually give it up? In the midst of uh, the last few years, I've asked the very question that Psalm 13 is asking. How long am I going to suffer from these feelings of darkness that stem from an event that I have no control over? How long, oh Lord? I think there are a lot of us that have these same questions and about different things that have happened in our lives. A lot of us have felt abandoned by God. Many of us have felt if as if God is completely absent from the situation or that He just doesn't care. But Psalm 13 is God's grace because it reminds us that God is with us and He doesn't want to lead us down a path that's going to numb our feelings or going to uh, deny reality or put off our pain. Instead, we're going to see that lament, what Psalm 13 is, a lament leads us to trust God and His faithfulness when all we feel is how distant He is from us. So as followers of Jesus, that's kind of all I want to talk about is we got to learn to lament. As uncomfortable as it may be, as we've been talking about the fruit of the Spirit and how we're empowered by the Spirit to, to, to love, peace, joy, all these things, I think God has given us language and liberty here to, 
to lament. And we've got to learn to lament in order to trust Him. So let me read Psalm 13 for us real quick, and then we'll, we'll just dive right in. I'm not going to beat around the bush. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes unless I sleep the sleep of death. Unless my enemy says I have prevailed over him. Unless my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. I'm sorry. I've prayed that a million times. So, it's... so Psalm 13, verse 1 and 2, we see that David, straight up, he just comes out, he just brings his complaint to God. He's bringing a complaint to God. And for us to learn to lament, we've got to understand that it's not always wrong to complain. In order for there to be lament, there has to be a complaint. And I'm not saying a self-centered rage against God because life didn't turn out the way you wanted it to, or, or I'm, I'm not even saying that you have the right to be angry at God. But what I am saying is that if you read the Psalms, how, countless Psalms are lament Psalms. Actually, statistically, one-third of the Psalms are lament Psalms. They're songs meant to be sang as a congregation. And even throughout Scripture, we see complaints that aren't deemed sinful. We've got the book of Lamentation. is three chapters of lament. We've got Jeremiah who laments, and he's suicidal. We've got Isaiah. We, we heard Rusty preach uh, Jonah here uh, more recently. We see there some version of godly complaint and then ungodly complaint where he's just mad that God saved the Nineveh rather than the Israelites. God, how could you do this? But there is a place for complaining that is biblical. One writer said, writers of lament and complaints in the Psalms often seek to make their case against God frequently citing God's promises in order to complain that God seems to be forgetting His promises. It's like they're just throwing the promises of God back at Him. So here you can see that without complaint, you really don't have lament. And I think that's something that we're very uncomfortable with, being real with God, like being honest and upfront about how we feel. There's some of us that can't even be honest with other people in this room, and some of us can't even be honest with ourselves. So how can we be honest with God about how we feel if we can't do that? There's a lot of people either walking around in anger, walking around in denial, which just 
causes us to end up living in a self-made prison of despair and bitterness for the rest of our lives. And some of us may even end up rejecting the faith altogether. And then there are some, on the other hand, that will adopt a form of stoicism to kind of try to project an air of contentment that in reality is also denial. This whole, how you doing, brother? I'm good. No, really, how you doing? I'm good. Two weeks later, how you doing? I'm good. We, we know all too well that things aren't good all the time, if we're honest. It's impossible. <laughs> but through godly complaint, we're able to express disappointment and move towards a resolution. God's given us this liberty, this language. So we see here in this psalm that David brings his complaint in these first two verses. And to understand the context of David's prayer, just to remind everybody, like, David, he's got some stories to tell. Uh, this is the guy that had been betrayed by friends. Um, let's think about Saul, but the betrayal there. Let's think about Absalom, his son, that killed his other son because that son did something to his daughter that was very sinful. All kinds of dysfunction within this family. Let's think about when David uh, seen Bathsheba on bathing and he said, oh, I will take her as my wife. And, and oh, uh, well, there's a problem. She's married to your best soldier. Oh, well, um, well, we'll figure something out later. He gets her pregnant. Oh, no, now there's no way to cover this up. I know, let's get Uriah to come back home on leave and, and that way it'll look like it was, it's his child. Well, he comes home. Things didn't really work out as planned. Uriah's basically sleeping on the front porch of David's uh, place. And David says, oh, let's send Uriah to the front line of the battle. That way he's killed so he doesn't have a, a contradictory story. David betrays his best soldier that had protected him and done things for him for years. And then the child that, that he had uh, conceived with Bathsheba dies. And if you read the rest of that story, you see David just slip off into a really, really dark time where he, he's not eating. He's just basically moping around. He's very depressed. So David had betrayed people. He'd, been, he'd betrayed his own self when Nathan came to him with the story about the, the lamb. David's like, I, I'd kill that guy. What does Nathan say? You are the man, David. David forgot who he, who he even was. So without, no, I know I probably just ranted and rambled on for about something that really isn't relevant, but when you look at Psalm 13, we don't know exactly where this psalm is coming from, where this prayer is coming from. But what we can say is, knowing all that, you could insert that prayer in almost every one of those circumstances. And what we know is that David's probably feeling like, this has happened, it should have taken its course, and it should be over with by now. But it's not, and he's left saying, how long? 
his complaint is throwing back the promise of God. We know God isn't forgetting us, right? We know that God has said that He will not forget us. We know that God has said that He will not abandon us. We know that God is not being defeated by the enemy. But many times in our hearts that seems true, doesn't it? Seems, it seems even more real than the truth. I think many of us have felt the feeling of pain, of the, the feeling of pain of betrayal or abandonment by a friend, family member. Some of you may feel the, uh, the pain of betrayal of yourself or other people that you've caused. But at the root of this is ultimately the feeling that God has abandoned us. And it's not hard to believe that in the moment. Especially when you have well-intentioned, caring, loving people coming up to you and say, it's for your good, brother or sister. God is working all things for your good. And all I want to do is punch you in the mouth for saying that to me, you know? How is it good when uh, your spouse gets an incurable disease and dies? How is it good when people you consider close friends and family sit you up before other friends and family and stab you in the back? How is that good? How is it good when you've tried and tried and tried for your marriage to work and it just doesn't work out? How is it good when... when your child is in the, in the NICU for 85 days not knowing that everything's going to be okay. And then people come up to you truthfully saying this. This is not wrong. That God is working all things for our good and His glory. But I don't want to hear that right now. How long, O oh Lord, do I have to feel like You've left me hanging? How long do I have to suffer the sharp pain from the memory of being hurt? How long do I have to endure sorrowful feelings that seem will never go away? How long do I have to feel like I've been defeated and the enemy has just hammered the last nail in the coffin and it's over? How long... Ashley can tell you this is a true story. How long do I have to, to relive the night that I was under such spiritual warfare and I would even go as far as saying like a demonic force was just like the weight of that I could feel and I was so mad at God for not letting this thing in and I walked in my bedroom and I put my fist through the side of my dresser drawer how long, how long do I have to feel like this, God? How long are you going to allow this to happen? What I want to do is encourage you, ask you, urge you to think about, ask yourself, what is the cry of your heart? How, or what is your how long question? We all have them. But none of, so often we don't take it to the Lord. But I want to encourage you, take it to the Lord because He's not surprised by it. It's not going to like ruffle His feathers when you say, God, I feel like You've left me hanging. Oh, God, really? Cody, oh my God. You know? No. 
He comes to us. He's not too weak to handle it. So we can look at verses 3 and 4 that once David owns it, he brings his complaint. Now we see that David's moved into bringing a request. So as he moves through this, he brings his complaint, and now he's asking boldly his request. He asks this as if this is his only hope. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I've prevailed over him, and lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. He's basically saying, listen to me, Lord, or I'm going to die. Answer me, God, or the enemy is going to win. Each request you see here, there's a solid confidence in God's power. <laughs> it's, he's, he says, I mean, he's coming to this as if this is his only hope. God, if you don't answer me, I am going to die. You're my only hope. If you don't uh, help me, the enemy is going to defeat me. Each request is confidently calling on God to act with boldness. What, what is interesting is that the character of God combined with this desperation of pain is kind of pushing David to desperately but to confidently be bold in his request. And so we see here a prayer that is modeled when God's presence feels absolutely missing, absent. This is where we see God inviting us to Himself even when we feel numb and distant. I mean, honestly, I feel like David here may even think he's praying to himself. It's almost like, I'm just throwing empty words out there, God, but I'm going to do it anyways because you've always been faithful to help me. I know from personal experience, numerous times praying, and just and finishing my prayer only to think that felt like the most pointless thing I could have done. I, it feels like the prayer went no further than my lips. Am I just talking to myself? Why would God allow us to be in this? Why is it necessary for us? Well, Rusty one time said regarding this, I want to steal from him a little bit, that maybe it's because some of us only pursue God to the extent that He meets the emotional demands that we place on Him. Or maybe, this one's a big one, maybe some of us lose faith in God's power when we lose the feeling of His presence. Many of us don't want to be around people that are in a bad mood all the time, right? And the reason is because we feel like that person's purpose is to make us feel good. We've said that a lot here, right? As if that in and of itself is what defines our relationship with that person, but I think that many of us are that way with God also. What if God only pursued us when all we, were, we weren't giving Him our felt presence? God hasn't left David hanging here. But instead, he's calling David into something much deeper than that. 
David is being brought to a place where he knows that his problem is something that only God can remedy. Only God can solve this, resolve this situation. And even when he feels that God has forgotten him, he is in desperation and he knows that there is literally nowhere else or nothing else that he can turn to. So all he's left to do here is say, God, hear me and answer me because I'm doing this because you've answered me before. You've been faithful to deliver on your promise time and time again. And just like I said this morning as we were praying, uh, just to remind myself, anytime that God decides to act, what happens? Things change, right? If God decides to, to act, whatever is He's acting on will not be the same as it was before He acted on it. And so let me encourage all of you and myself, we shouldn't be afraid in light of that to bring our request to God and ask for God's divine intervention. It's okay to say, Lord, please do something. We're not trying to manipulate God into doing anything, but rather we're trying to remind ourselves that, that God can be trusted and that we aren't strong enough to do this on our own. And I think that when we ask God to remember His promises, we're, we're not doing it because we, He has actually forgotten them, but rather it's just another way of asking God to act on them. I'm trusting, Lord, what Your Word says. Now please, just please do it. I need You to do it. So Because asking God... Uh, I about butchered that. Asking God to remember... And to act connects our present struggle with God's historic faithfulness. It reminds us that God is continuously, over and over, time and time again, delivered on His promise. We're not praying to a genie in the bottle that gives us three wishes. We've got to keep them in our back pocket. Like, oh, I've got to wait till something really bad happens. No. I stub my toe. Oh, God, it hurts, you know. I can complain to God that it hurts because we feel pain. And it wasn't God's intention for pain to even be part of life. But because of us, it has. It's entered the world. We have a Father that we can trust and one that won't scold us for bringing our complaint and our request. So I urge you, I urge myself... We can share our fears and our needs with God. We're praying to a Father that is sovereign and is in control of everything, and He cares. We can ask God to act justly. We can ask God to heal. It's okay. We can ask God to change the situation. We can ask God for help. We can ask God to hear us and answer us. And the reason we can is because we know as David is expressing, we have no hope outside of him. So I think that when we approach God in this manner with our bold request, we're expressing a deeper trust in His power and presence than we would in any other normal, circum normal circumstance. When life's going great, we're not going around saying, God, help me, help me all the time. Right? So as David moves through this prayer, 
again, he begins to remind himself of how, how God has acted in the past. And so once he shared his complaint, he brings a request, he recalls God's faithfulness to him in the past, and he kind of brings a reminder to himself. So in verses 5 and 6 we see that. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. Verse 5, we see David turn his mind to a uh, series of trust-laden statements that are rooted in the character of God. He starts out with the word, but. In the, the Lament Psalms, the word but, however, yet, have uh, consistently marking a critical twist or turn towards trust. Even in Psalm 88, if you've ever read Psalm 88, it's dark. It doesn't end really that well. So it ends with, darkness has become my companion. Okay, that's encouraging. But there is a part in there where the psalmist actually says, but God, you are God. I can't remember exactly. I probably should have read that before. But there is a turn where at least the psalmist kind of takes a, at least some hope in, in, in the character of God. And then it kind of takes another turn. But there always this, this but yet, however, always kind of turns the psalmist towards trust. But throughout the, the lament psalms, we see that. And they're found in every one of them. But that but, however, uh, and yet, that, all, that is found, God, I can't talk, that are found in every lament um, leads us to see that lamenting trust isn't just a belief or a conviction, but rather it's trusting despite the circumstances that might lead us to believe otherwise. Those same words, but, however, yet, mark an intentional shift from the cause of lament to, the, to trusting the God who is, who was, what He does, and the promises of His Word. Just for example, in, in other Psalms we see this. In Psalm 31, um, we see this. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. But I trust in You, O Lord. I say, You are my God. You see that but kind of shifts us back to that, that uh, towards trust. In Psalm 71, For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet evermore. We see this over and over, over and over in the Psalms. Trust is believing what you know to be true even though the facts of your suffering call that belief into question. Lament keeps us turning toward trust by giving us language to step into the wilderness between our painful reality and our hopeful longings. David says here in verse 5 that he's trusted in the steadfast love of God. And that, that phrase, steadfast love, uh, is probably not even the best way to say that. But David's basically saying, 
is talking about the fact that God is has brought him into a covenant relationship with him. It, it, he's never failed to love him up to this point. So David's saying, I've trusted in your steadfast love. You've never failed to love me before. You've never failed to deliver on your promise. So why should I doubt that you will continue not to do it? People like me, even still, may roll our eyes at that and say, you're telling me that just by believing in the steadfast love of God that everything's supposed to be okay. I mean, that, that I, I kind of, as I studied this, I kind of laughed because you think about it, like steadfast love sounds like the title of a cheesy, cheesy like CCM song on the radio or something. It's like, oh, steadfast love, you know. It just sounds, it sounds light in some, some sense in regards to this psalm. But what we need to understand is that this steadfast love is more than just a trivial statement or a nice phrase that just washes everything away. We're talking about the covenant promise, covenant love of God. The actual word is actually is said there. The Jesus Storybook Bible, yes, I use the Jesus Storybook Bible, actually says it very well. It says, uh, it describes it as the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. The love that bought us with a price. We are His people and He's insanely serious about you. He's insanely serious about His glory. He hasn't, He won't, never will give up on those that, is, that are His children. And David is bringing this reminder, this promise, to confront his feelings of abandonment in this season. So think about David. He's looking back because you've dealt bountifully with me. He's thinking about his own self, but you also, you've got to remember, he's the king of Israel, so he's looking back over the history of Israel and the covenants that God has given his people. We're, we're talking about the God that kept his covenant, but that gave Abraham and Sarah a child when they were too old. This is the God that kept his covenant by providing a ram in the place of Isaac to be sacrificed. The God that kept His covenant by saving His people from famine by causing all of Joseph's trials. And here's that. It's working all, all this for your good. He's working all of Joseph's trials to work together to provide the people of Israel with food. The God that kept His covenant by saving His people from extinction in Egypt. The God who kept His covenant by giving the people of Israel a king to rule over them even when they rejected God and, and wanted to be like everybody else. This is the God that kept His covenant to restore His kingdom even as He judged His people by sending them into exile. This is a covenant faithful love that has continuously, time and time again, overcame all the odds. It's a covenant love that's never failed. A covenant love that's countlessly prevailed despite how any of these people mentioned in that series of stories has felt. Abraham and Sarah, they didn't feel like God was going to deliver on that promise, right? Abraham went and had a child with somebody else because he thought it was taking too long. How about the, the Israelites in the wilderness? 
uh, we got to get food on the Sabbath, even though that God said not to, kind of thing. They never, they never trusted. But this is a God that has continuously delivered on His promise. So you might be saying, well, I can see how this is true for David. I can see even for Israel how this would be true. But how does this connect to me? Even some of us may be sitting here thinking, you know, I mentioned here a while ago that some of us don't even want to tell ourselves how we feel. What if we don't even know how to pray? I think somebody was talking about this here a couple weeks ago. What if we don't know how to pray during the midst of our suffering? Like Psalm 88 kind of seems to express. Well, there, there is good news. And I really don't even have to share any of this because our prayers and our songs have said exactly what we want to share here is that we have a high priest for those that don't know how to pray in the midst of suffering. You have a high priest. One who came from heaven to earth. Not to be a conquering king, but a suffering and humble servant that grew up in a normal family with problems just like you and me have. One who came and suffered way more than any of us could ever imagine. Jesus who came, who shared good news with people only to be mocked, ridiculed, stabbed in the back, betrayed, so on and so forth, is the one that stands in your place right now. He sympathizes with our suffering. He knows what it's like to live on this earth that's ruined by sin. He knows what it's like to feel pain. When He was on the cross, it didn't feel like a day at the beach when He was up there getting nails drove through His arms and His feet. Crown of thorns getting whipped and beaten and ripped to shreds. It hurt. For us, the good news, like I said, is even when we may not know how to pray in the midst of suffering, we have a great high priest. And as we've read a minute ago, he's seated at the right hand of the Father and he's interceding for you and me right now and he knows how to pray. Not only do we have a great high priest, we also have a suffering servant in Jesus. One that endured the pain one that was beaten and ripped to shreds, as I've already mentioned. But He did that all for the sake of our salvation to the glory of God. How can we not bring our complaint and our request to a Savior that's willing to go that distance to bring us into His family? He understands. He hasn't left you. He's with you right now. He's present. If anything, He's actually moved in closer to you. Because He suffered the cross, the greatest suffering that we deserved is over. Guess what? You and me deserve the cross. That's what we deserve. We deserve the full, entire wrath of God because of our rebellion against God. But Jesus said, let me step in their place. And that is the ultimate suffering. It's over for us. This is a story of steadfast, covenant, faithful love that we can't ignore when we're going through a time of suffering. The enemy that seems to be winning in some seasons, guess what? He's been defeated. 
that pain that we suffer from being hurt by others, it'll be over one day. God makes all things right. Justice will be served. All things will be made new in the physical presence of Jesus. So don't be afraid to lament. Don't be afraid to bring your feelings to God. He can handle it. Even Jesus on the cross lamented. Father, why have you forsaken me? This isn't fun. But he knew his suffering was the will of the Father, and he endured the cross. Our Father can handle our emotions or lack thereof. He loves you, he's not going anywhere. The cross. And the resurrection settled that. So let us be a people that can lament and learn to trust God. And as I've said earlier, God has given us this language and liberty in order to deal with pain and suffering that doesn't lead to hopelessness. So let us bring all these things to Him and trust God's faithfulness even when all we feel is this distance. Father, we want to thank You for the good news we have in Jesus. We want to thank You for never giving up on us, even when we feel like You're not there. You are. Father, help us to remember that believing the promise of Your presence is in, in the midst of my suffering takes time. Help us to know that it grows slowly. Help us to know that it grows through stages in prayer. So help us to pray until our hearts rejoice in You. Help us to know that even when we don't feel You, You're there. When things aren't good, You're still good. We love You. We thank You for Jesus. We thank You that You've brought us into a family together that we can encourage one another during times of, of hurt, suffering, and pain or even just when things don't go well. Let us glorify You through that. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm